welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by our partners at GameSite. GameSite provides full-service campaign management, taking charge of consulting, influencer discovery, relationship management, billing, and reporting, leaving you free to focus on your core business. With their measurement platform and creator-focused programs, GameSite helps brands grow, increase revenue, and ensure player satisfaction worldwide. And since the company draws from almost a decade of battle-tested experience, including with notable customers like Bungie, Capcom, Ubisoft, and hundreds more, GameSite's attribution platform meets the unique needs of PC, console, and Web3 games. Notably, GameSite brings display, social, influencer, and affiliate marketing into one dashboard for easy comparison. Marketing attribution for PC and console games is complicated, but whether your game is free-to-play, premium, or supported by DLCs, GameSite has you covered. To learn more about how GameSite has served other games teams and how it can help yours, simply visit GameSite.io or check out the link in the show notes. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Navic Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Nico Vori. I am very excited for today's episode. We have a great guest with us today, who in many ways is at least partially responsible for the start of my own career in gaming, uh, back in the OG Zynga days. Our guest today is none other than Amit Mahajan, one of the creators of Farmville. Uh, he was one of the founders of My Mini Life, which is a company Zynga acquired in 2009, and which ultimately led uh, to the development of the game that became the cultural icon, the internet treasure, as Mark Pincus liked to say, that we all grew to know and love. Um, among other things, Ahmed has also been a co-founder uh, in 2017 of Rarebits, uh, which is relevant uh, to this conversation, since it is a, uh, or was at least, a zero-fee NFT marketplace. And now, he's the founder of Proof of Play which just announced a $33 million seed round led by, and if you guessed A16Z, well done, since who else would lead a seed round of that magnitude? Uh, just kidding. Uh, congratulations, Ahmed. Um, I'll let, I'm going to talk much more about what Proof of Play does, but in a nutshell, uh, they are building fully on-chain games. Uh, and this is a topic that I have genuinely been wanting to talk about on the pod for quite some time now. And while there have been a few others who've been tinkering with this notion of fully on-chain games, I have not really seen um, anything that has the potential to break through. Not yet. Uh, until, of course, now. Uh, if anyone can make fully on-chain games work, it is Amit and his team. Uh, and so I'm delighted to welcome him to the show to talk about Proof of Play, his vision for what fully on-chain games can offer gamers, and indeed, the entire gaming community. Uh, Amit, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, with that out of the way, let's get right into it. So, um, I mean, I kind of gave the Cliff's Notes version or the Blinkist version, if you will, of your career, but you've done a lot more than that. Um, why don't you tell us more about your background um, and then your journey into Web3? Sure, yeah. So, um, a bit of a ride. Uh, I started off, um, you know, basically modding games. Um, that got me a 
that got me a, a job at Epic Games out of college where I worked on the Unreal Engine, Gears of War, uh, before leaving the start of my main life, which you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, after we, after we were acquired, uh, by Zynga, uh, I helped build the, the Farmville engine, which then became the, the Ville engine for a lack of a, a better term. And it, uh, it basically powered all of the games that, uh, were built on Facebook by Zynga at the time. And so, uh, you know, after doing, uh, a few different games at Zynga, I, I left, um, and, and started a, uh, a growth marketing company that would help other uh, game developers uh, basically like market and grow their games, you, 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 utilizing kind of the, the, the practices that we, um, you know, uh, developed at Zynga. And so uh, that's actually how we connected, right? Because you were at a company right. called Rocket Games and, and uh, we, were, we were helping you guys out, helping, uh, you know, helping you guys kind of grow, grow the games that you guys were releasing. Uh, after a while, I just decided that you know, being an ad tech, like really wasn't my thing. So uh, I left and started a, uh, a fund focused on virtual reality and augmented reality. That was really enlightening um, for a few reasons. One, um, I think that technology is still a ways away from a, from consumer adoption. Maybe Apple will pull it off. Maybe they won't. Um, but I, I spent a bunch of time kind of digging into like virtual worlds you know, the future of online identity, uh, the metaverse, which now has become more of kind of a passe term. Um, and, and that also kind of led me to crypto where I spent a bunch of time thinking about, you know, how would truly online digital universes exist? And at, at the time, you know, Ethereum just came out. I started to kind of see what was happening there. Um, but it w- really wasn't until... You know, I saw CryptoKitties and what that team was doing with NFTs. That was like, oh, okay, we can actually do like true digital ownership now. And my immediate reaction was, oh, we should just go build the single of crypto. Um, but then at the time, it was just it was too early. Um, I was like, there's gonna be a ton of other companies doing this. Like, why don't we actually just focus on like the assets themselves? And that's why I started Rarebits, which was this uh, zero fee NFT marketplace. Um, I think we launched maybe the same week as OpenSea. It was around that time. So we were early to it. And it, so, you know, if you're talking about my career and how I got here, I, I think I have, if I have one kind of common factor in anything I've done is I'm perpetually early to things. <laughs> um, you know, I was, I was early to social gaming. I was early to, uh, to VR. I was early to NFTs and, I, and I'm definitely early to on-chain games. And so, um, you know, if you kind of look at the data points as re- you know shared with you, it's just this is literally like if you took all those things and smashed them together, it kind of makes sense that I'm here building game engines, doing stuff with crypto, working with digital ownership and identity, working with digital universes. It's kind of, you know all those things just kind of really are being utilized here at uh, at Proof of Play. Awesome. Um, so proof of play, let's get to proof of play. Um, you are building fully on-chain games. And like I said, I genuinely am super excited about this, this concept. Um, I've been looking at it myself. Um, essentially means no centralized servers. Um, what does that mean in practice? What, what, is, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, so like when you build games normally, like, you know, you have a server that's essentially like storing and, and, and watching and, and making sure that all of the 
the actions that players are taking the games are valid, right? So if you're like, you know, imagine you're playing chess, every move that you make, um, you know, on chess.com, they're, they're checking to make sure that that's a valid move and you're not cheating. It then takes that move and it sends it to all the other players, records in a database somewhere. And, um, and so like with, uh, with Farmville, like every time you would play that game and work on your farm, we would send it to Zynga servers and we would just essentially like, we'd store the results of, of your, of your gameplay actions. Um, with blockchain gaming, it's, it's different. And so every action you take is a, transaction that's then you know validated not by a central server but by a set of distributed nodes on uh, on a blockchain and you know so instead of there being one party that's checking everything every person who's essentially a node in this blockchain is watching everyone else so it's kind of peer-to-peer validation and um, every time that you make a change to your to, to your to your gameplay or, or take a gameplay action instead of it storing into a database it's being written to this like kind of shared time capsule that is the blockchain, right? And so, what's really interesting is that um, I mean, you get a bunch of unique properties out of that. Um, one is that um, the blockchain itself ensures that all because in, the blockchain itself stores the state of everyone's gameplay. It essentially makes sure that like you know even if you know, one node goes down, there's a bunch of copies of it. And so, uh, you know, at Zynga, we had 300 million people play Farmville, a billion hours were put into it. And in 2020, the game was shut down because uh, Flash, the technology was the game was based on, was no longer supported on mobile phones. And so as a result of that, the players who had put all of this time, investment, they had bought virtual items, you know, they were just pretty much out of luck. That database was gone. Um, that billion plus hours has just disappeared. And so, but if that game was stored on the blockchain, like someone could pick up the pieces, right? Someone could build a different client. Uh, you know, players can make a copy of the data that's there. So, so a game that's on chain and it's like truly on chain is like a hundred percent open source, a hundred percent open data. And so it really kind of enables all these unique properties. You know, the first is persistent. These games are truly, um, you know, they last forever. And, and two is, is they're, they're extensible, which essentially means that someone could take that data and create something new. They can remix the game. And so, um, you know, games have always had this property, but, but on-chain gaming really kind of supercharges it. And so, um, yeah, I'm happy to go deeper into it. Yeah, I, I, that's exactly uh, what I do want to go a little bit deeper on. So I obviously the digital ownership piece is is a well trodden path by now. That's what most developers have done with NFTs, um, but typically they keep the the you know gameplay logics on their own centralized servers, and that obviously affords a, a whole bunch of stuff that we can get into later in this conversation. Um, but you alluded to the fact that you know digital ownership persistence. Um, what does what else does being fully on chain enable that you really can't do otherwise? Because that's always the question you should ask as a, as a developer: is why build on chain? Why make it more complicated than it needs to be? And obviously, a lot of things will smooth out over the years as as infrastructure gets built out. But what is it for you that being fully on chain enables that just can't be done otherwise? Yeah. So the first is this idea that the games are forever, uh, which I think you kind of alluded to with persistence and like. Uh, you know, as a player, when a game is on chain, you know, you don't have to worry about essentially, you know, in 
in finance, it's like single party risk, right? Like the game company is going to go away. Uh, they're going to, they're going to change the rules on you. In fact, um, Vitalik, uh, the, one of the creators of Ethereum, you know, famously said that like the reason he started Ethereum was because Blizzard changed like the balance of his warlock character in World of Warcraft. Right. And he's just like the centralized party just has full control over this thing, which, you know, he invested his time, his time into. And so, uh, you know, the first is just that, like, you know, as a player, do you have a certain insurances that like, okay, if I'm going to uh, invest and write the story of my character that like that's it's always going to be available to me. Um, and in that way, like, you know, I it's, it's, you know, one way to think about this is that like, the Ethereum blockchain itself is in some ways the most permanent form of data storage we have, right? Like um, if we were to put something on Dropbox or Google drive um, or wherever, uh, you know, those companies can go away. You could forget to pay the Dropbox bill and you can lose all of everything you've ever stored there. But if it's on the Ethereum blockchain, it's essentially copied, you know, across a hundred thousand nodes all over the world. So even if 99,000, of those nodes go away, you can always spin up a new one and get a full copy of it and data keeps living. So in some ways that, you know, if you truly kind of go through the, the exercise of thinking what does permanence actually mean, you end up realizing that the most permanent form of storage that exists is actually putting something on the Ethereum blockchain, um, even more so than these like huge multinational companies that, that they're, you know, say that they're going to keep your data secure. And so in that way, I, I think about it because it's all open space. Anyone can write to it that like this is you know humanity's time capsule. And so a lot of the NFT art and stuff that was coming out is is you know I think it's valuable in the same way that like caveman drawings are valuable. The stuff that's on chain is is permanent, has the highest chance of surviving well into the future than even physical art which you know we lose to floods and fires and all this other stuff. And so so now look, I don't know if like the history of your like, you know, your RPG character should last for a thousand years. But the, the properties of it and, and starting to think about that way are really interesting. It's, it's, it's not ephemeral like other kind of things that we had before. Uh, and the second thing which you got at, which we alluded to earlier, was this idea of extensibility. And, um, you know, when I think about extensibility, it's, it's really, I think about like how games were created decades ago, which is like, I got my start in gaming by modding Doom. Right, I would go and make levels for for Doom and Quake. That hit the limits of the of the game engine. I decided to build my own game engine, and like, and, and like, so modding and this idea of creating new games from existing games has pretty much existed since games have existed. You know, digital games have existed, and so like, um, you know, when we think about like Counter Strike coming out of Half Life or Dota coming out of Warcraft Three. Like in, in some ways, the mods themselves are actually more popular than the original game itself, and um, and so, but like as we've kind of gone from downloadable software games to games as a service or games that are on mobile devices, modding has kind of gone away on most platforms. Like yes, there's a bit of it still on PC, but like it's kind of like this like niche thing. And uh, what's really cool about Onchain Games is because it's all open source and open data it's permissionless to mod, which essentially means that anyone can take, you know, that someone could take, you know, our game pirate nation and literally create an engine nation. In fact, we encourage it. They can build their own clients, 
right? So like you, you can use our our game client or you can build your own. Someone actually, I, someone showed me recently that they built a command line client for the game, which is really cool, right? And like, that's like, we like, that is kind of a return to what the internet originally was. If you think about it, it was, you know, yes, we have HTML, which is an open protocol, but then you can use whatever browser you want, right? You can take an existing page, you can remix and put up your own page on the internet and then other people can use their browser to get to it. So, you know, in a, so the on-chain games, in, in my opinion, is like where it really starts to, to get really interesting is this idea that every time we create a game or someone remixes it, that's now fodder for the next person to remix it, for the next person to create something new. And so now, you know, we're getting this like level of like hyper collaboration that like does hasn't really existed in the games industry before. You know, I, I think of it's like very similar to what GitHub did for software development. I think on-chain gaming can do for game development. All right. Well, th- there's a lot to unpack there, and we're definitely going to get into extensibility uh, a little bit later in this in this episode. But I'm going to start with this notion of forever game, which, by the way, I, I love that phrase. Um, I don't know if you coined it, but if you did, well done. It's it's uh, very resonant to me, and obviously describes what it is very well, just in those two words. But uh, I do want to ask this question. Uh, you know, it's not a tough question, but it's a it, you know I think it's a legitimate question to ask uh, anybody. Uh, who is trying to build something forever, you kind of said, you know, do we need this RPG character to live for a thousand years? That's that's the question, really. Do players want forever games? Do they care that their character lives forever? Now, Vitalik cares, sure. Um, and of course, there's some percentage of people and players who really do care. Uh, but is it a big enough segment of the gaming community that cares that their characters are in a forever game or this game will last for a thousand years? Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about. And, you know, my view of it is very much like, uh, especially when it comes to block space, there's a market for it, right? So I, I believe in like, you know, free markets for anything. And so okay, let's let's go back to the time capsule analogy here, right? Like, should a, pe- should a piece of NFT art be put on chain? Or should this character be put on chain? Should your gameplay actions be put on chain? And the way that that is determined, I think, is based on pricing. Right. So essentially, every time you write to the blockchain, you're paying paying gas, you're paying a transaction fee. And I would I would dictate that if you found value in putting that data on chain and you're willing to pay the price for it, then it should be there. Right. And I, I'm not the one to determine that. I think the, the you know people, the individual creators kind of figure that out. A lot of folks uh, determine that, you know, when they were minting their 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 piece of art, that, hey, like I should that this is worth you know, mean in you know, inscribing this. Now, like in terms of, you know, philosophically, should these things exist? Um, you know, I again if if everything we put out there is now you know, you can't talk about one without the other. If I create something that I put on chain, right, and it exists, it doesn't have to just exist within my universe the context that originally create it was originally created right it can it can be used in other creations so let's go really simply here imagine i create a bunch of generic art you know things like trees and plants and cars and whatever right and i use them in like a city building game that game may just die right maybe you know players decide you know what it's not worth playing anymore but it's possible that someone else takes those assets which are now on chain and uses them in a brand new game and doesn't have to recreate that art, right? 
And, you know, if you think about games as they've existed before, so much of game development is literally just composition. It's taking pieces from other games, art from art packs or whatever it may be, putting them together and creating something new. So what's really cool about this is even if the game itself is no longer there and, you know, the potential for the pieces of that game to then be used to create something new is there. So the next developer, the person who doesn't have an art team, who doesn't have the, you know, the full backing of, of the team that originally created the game can actually get a leg up, right? So what you're really doing is every time we create something, you're, you're, cre- you're actually creating shoulders for other people to stand on. And that's the default. And so I, you know, I can't see a universe in which this doesn't eventually become the main way that people create these things because um, it's just all you're, all we're doing is collectively creating a public commons, right? It's like creative commons for everyone. And, and that just enables a lot more creativity and allows people who don't have the full skill set to at least get their ideas out. Yeah, I absolutely buy the uh, developer perspective. I think your your you, that answer was great for the developer perspective, and I, I'm 100 on board. That yes, it's great to have a Creative Commons for all these assets. You could you know cynically argue that the Unity Asset Store kind of does this, but I understand that that's a centralized server, and they could go away. And if they're going to be slapping, you know, this episode is being recorded, I think just a couple of days after uh, Unity announced their yeah. uh, per download fee, which uh, has the industry up in arms. Uh, I can totally see that you know maybe people don't want to use the Unity engine anymore and they'll migrate away so sooner than you might even think so i understand the developer perspective 100 being a developer myself um but i, I do want to come back to this question which I, i'm not sure you fully answered here is do players actually care about this stuff right and again some do Vitalik clearly cares but do enough yeah. players care that even though it's easier for developers to build these games or you know you can come in and stand on the shoulders of the giants um the the player arguably doesn't really care they just care that they're playing a fun game and that you know it's it's entertainment time they'll spend an hour two hours two years playing this game and then at some point they'll churn out right i mean that's just what games are so i'm very curious about that player perspective um and, and would love to hear your thoughts Sure, sure. I'll answer that question in two parts. So the first, and I'll, I'll be super direct about it, right? Um, so, so, so two things. Um, one is that um, you know my belief is that for certain, like, so, so two things. One is I don't think people are going to play a game because it's permanent. I think they're going to play because it's fun, and we're like super, super, super clear about that because ultimately, like, we can sit here and talk about the technical benefits all we want about the on-chain games, but like. My job as a leader of a game studio is to build fun games and to entertain people. And my belief is that over time, they will start to see the benefits of it. Now, I think, you know, this is a very personal kind of decision, right? Like, so you're right. Like you say, you place like, you know, the best example I've here is you look like some, you look at something like Pokemon Go, which was this huge, had this huge rise and then kind of hit this like plateau of players. It kind of, you know, spiky and then kind of, so there is a set of people who just, you're right, they don't care. If Pokemon Go like went away after the first, you know, two weeks the game came out and was popular, they'd be fine with it. But there is a cohort of people, usually the most invested players, the players who were there for community, the players who were there for, um, there for, there for the franchise, whatever it may be, there's people who essentially, once they stick around, they essentially never churn, right? And what this does is this gives those people the choice to keep the game going, even after the original developer itself was like, you know what, this is no longer profitable for us or technically feasible or whatever to keep the game going. 
So what it's doing is it's actually just giving people a choice. And um, the, the same, I would say this actually touches on the same debate of when people, if someone was to buy a digital game or a physical game, there's some people who are like, no, I'm always buying a physical game, even though digital games have all of these additional properties. And the reason why is because ultimately they are in control of the thing they purchase, the thing they put investment into, right? It's theirs. It's an asset that they, you know, is, is, is belongs to them. And so, you know, I, I think, again, like it's very personal. It's, I think some people who are like, whatever, it doesn't matter. I think for a lot of people who are really, like, really get into the universes, um, they care a lot. And um, I will say that, you know, from my perspective, playing MMOs in the past, being a game creator in the past, the reason that people tend to stick around games is not because of, a lot of times, not because of the game itself, but because of the community that they've fostered in the online game. And actually, that's the other thing to kind of think about is that, like, you know, if you shut down an online game, you're not just shutting down the game servers, you're also potentially shutting down the communities, right? And that's actually how I got into this to begin with. I was like, oh, like, how do you create permanent forever communities? And the answer is you bootstrap them with games. And then you essentially ensure that the, the community can exist even if the game was there or without the original game developer. And, um, and so for that reason, you know, I don't think like, I think people will care, at least some fraction of people. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with that. I think the, the, the question we're all as an industry trying to answer is how big is that slice, right? And we, we just don't know that right now. I think that's, that's, I think that's fair to say. So, um, you know, is it 5%? Is it 50%? Is it 75%? I, we don't know, right? I, I, uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell you, but I mean, like, you know, if we were to look at the history of games, it's like how many people will play mobile games? How many people will play MMOs? Like, like any time you have a paradigm shift in games, there is this like we don't know till we till we till we know, right? And uh, like I said, we're super early to this stuff, but like the ideals of what's possible are worth trying, and 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 like that's the reason we're doing this company. It's it's like the exploration of this idea. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree with that, and I'm I'm doing the same thing. We're exploring how many people care um, about this, and over time people will learn there'll be a group of people who are early adopters just like with any technology curve right there'll be those early adopters um and then there'll be some laggards over there and um so w- we do know that there will be a percentage of people if we just don't know how many okay well let's let's jump on to something else here so um let's go to the technical stuff because that is important that is relevant here uh, we are very early and so there aren't a lot of tools out there so i think in general it's true to say that the more stuff right you put on chain the harder it is to build from a technical standpoint um uh, and some of the things we as developers take for granted on centralized servers, like uh, I think you even alluded to these gameplay validation, game economy balancing, um, they're easier to do when you control it as a developer on centralized servers. It's harder to do when you're building on chain. Um, what are the, some of the challenges that you're facing, maybe even some unexpected ones that you didn't think you were going to encounter, and how are you solving those? Yeah, I mean, so there's all sorts of really tricky things that we've had to do in order to make you know make these games work. But so blockchain games traditionally have a history of being viewed as complex, expensive, um, you know, just to like, you know, the, just the basics of doing something on chain is that you have like a wallet, you have to pay gas in order to make changes to the game state on chain. And that requires like confirmations and all this other stuff. And so, so, you know, our North Star is how do we create games that essentially don't put the technology in your face, right? They're not like, so there's, there's, there's technical problems. And there's also design problems here, like product mm-hmm. design problems. And, um, 
you know, so one of the things that we did, the first thing we did was we, we tried to figure out how to get rid of transaction pop-ups. So, you know, as you imagine that every time, you know, you played, uh, you know, you play, you press, press the button in, one, in, in some other game, there was like a PayPal window that popped yes. up. You had to pay two cents, right. In order to like, you know, uh, take, take an action in a game or attack an enemy or whatever. So, um, we, we built, we did this thing we, where we like invented this signless and gasless, uh, uh, solution. And, and basically what we're doing is we're like provisioning a burner wallet for the user. So every time they log into the device, we create a burner wallet for them. They have, uh, you know, a wallet that essentially holds all of their stuff, right? And that wallet gives the burner wallet permission to take gameplay actions on behalf of the main kind of player wallet. And underneath the covers, like, we're just, like, signing transactions. We're sending it to a relay server that we run that basically, like, pay just adds the gas to it and essentially uh, allows the game to, to flow smoothly. So if you're playing, you know, Pirate Nation, for example, you're just going around, click, 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 click. Um, and it's just like playing a game that's existed before. It's essentially, from a user experience perspective, exactly the same. And, um, but underneath the covers, there's like all sorts of complexity in order to like make that a seamless experience. Um, the other thing that's really hard is when you're on chain, again, everything is open data, which essentially means there's no secrets, right? So in games, secrets are really important. Imagine you're playing poker and you can see everyone's hand, right? It just doesn't, it breaks the game. And so, uh, a lot of what we had to do was in something we're working on right now is like essentially an off chain, we call it the P- working title, uh, either POP protocol or PVP protocol. We're figuring it out. But basically what it is, is this decentralized validation. When you take a move, you send essentially your game state to another, uh, to, to, a, to a set of nodes that also knows how the game works. And it essentially signs off saying, this was a valid move or this was not a valid move, right? And in that way, you can allow players to compete with each other, essentially off-chain, and then store the results of that match on-chain. So what's crazy about this is at, you know, at the extreme, you could even do something like take uh, like a Smash Brothers or a fighting game, take the entire move list, all the inputs, right? Send it to like a judge, the equivalent of like a referee who says, yes, this is all valid. They sign it, you know, they use cryptographic signing and say, yes, this is valid. And then essentially publish that on chain. So now you essentially have decentralized refereeing and validation and 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 um, and, and secure matches uh, without ever having to uh, run a centralized server. And so you know we're in the really like kind of early stages of that. But um, you know that plus the signless gas and stuff. Some things we have to do to solve for random numbers. Like it's it's been. It's it's a lot of work, but um, you know someone has to figure these things out. So we're we're going at it. I'm breaking into a cold sweat just listening to you here, <laughs> uh, taking taking on all this pain. And and uh, I applaud you, sir, for being uh, uh, the brave uh, front runner to us all for us all uh, to figure out some of these problems. Because yeah, it's not easy doing this stuff. And uh, how you describe it just just but dude it's so much fun oh i bet it's, oh, so, I bet. it's so much fun it's like you know like what's the point like I, I didn't start this company to just go and replace credit card payments with nft purchases that's like a really dumb reason to do it just build 
games that way. Like there has to be something bigger, right? It can't just be about the, um, you know, just using the technology for using technology's sake. There has to be kind of a reason to do it. And the challenge is like, you know, there's, there's really a reward in the challenge itself. And, and luckily my, my team is all kind of built that way too. And, you know, maybe, maybe we're just like, we're gloves for punishment, but like, honestly, we're, we're having a ton of fun figuring this stuff out. No, I, I absolutely. And I, I genuinely believe you. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, that's a lot of technical pain to take on, um, as a, as a front runner. So no, I, applaud you. I really do. Uh, so let's talk about your first game, um, Pirate Nation. Uh, it lives on Ethereum, uh, and that part totally makes sense to me. It's non-controversial. But your gameplay takes place on the L2 Arbitrum Nova. Um, and I think you are genuinely the first guest we've had on this pod uh, building on Arbitrum Nova. So I am very curious about this choice. Um, but we're going to start with Pirate Nation first, because that's the game. And then we're going to come back to why did you make these choices, uh, technology choices, especially around Arbitrum Nova? Sure. Uh, so Pirate Nation, just for your, for your listeners, is a on-chain RPG. You have a pirate crew uh, that you go and you level up. Uh, you build, you basically gather loot. Um, it's like an energy-based game. You go on quests, you gather loot. Uh, you craft that loot into ships and you know attachments and all sorts of other things. And then you go to battle. Um, and you know, the battle itself is like a kind of card based, uh, turn based game, um, where you're fighting other pirate crews, uh, fantastical creatures, uh, that kind of thing to see who can become, you know, the best pirate, the, the pirate captain in the world. Right. So we have a leaderboard where players compete with each other. We have like raid events where they collaborate to go fight, um, like take down bosses, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, we launched the game back in December 2022 as a uh, token-gated experience. We essentially, I mean, we did a free mint. We essentially said, hey, we're just going to give away 9,000 pirates. So anyone who wants one can just get one. Uh, you have to pay a little bit of um, gas on Ethereum. I think it was like a few bucks at the time, but like um, in order to mint it. And then uh, in the first version of the game, once you had your pirate, you had to bridge to Polygon. And so, again, I mentioned, like, you know, every time you take a action on chain, you have to pay gas. And the Ethereum blockchain is very expensive. It's just not tenable for building games. Mm-hmm. So even though, like, the pirates themselves were on, were on Ethereum, all the gameplay actions were happening on this cheaper chain. And so for us, originally, that was Polygon. And we, uh, you know, in order to, you know, create a seamless experience from day one, we were paying for all of the gas for all the players. And, um, you know, we had, I've got numbers now, but like essentially, um, you know, in, in this kind of first beta period of the game, uh, the first few months, the gas costs on Polycon kept going up to the point where like, we were spending like three to $4,000 a day on gas. Whew. Um, yeah. It's, it's, that doesn't scale. It, that yeah. doesn't scale. It, it, it doesn't scale. It doesn't scale. And so, so like, but like our model for thinking about like kind of the Ethereum ecosystem is that the L1 is the most secure. That's where like where you want like your most valuable stuff, right? And then the various L2s are just essentially execution environments, right? So it's the equivalent of being like, okay, I have like an AWS EC2 instance, or do I have it like a Microsoft Azure server instance? So from my perspective, like, okay, if Polygon, you know, was too expensive for us, we should go to, uh, we should just migrate the game to another network 
And so we did our, you know, my team is just absolutely insane. They're like crazy the way they figured this out, but like they migrated the game seamlessly. So players didn't even have to do anything. And so, you know, we moved, um, you know, it's been a few months now from Polygon to Arbitrum Nova. And uh, Nova has been really cool because like one, it's, it's, it's um, the way you think about these blockchains is they all have different properties. Like some are faster, some are more secure, et cetera. And Nova it's, it's, it's um, Arbitrum itself is a, is a roll up. It's an optimistic roll up, but, but Nova is, it's, it's a, is a data availability community, which long story short just means it's like just a bunch of services validating actions. Right. And so it's faster and it's cheaper. And so now the game is, has been running on Nova for the last few months. And it's been great. It's like super fast for like, you know, players take actions, the, the things like underneath the cover, their, their game states persisted really quickly. Um, you know, for us, it's a lot cheaper to run the game. Um, I do think though, in the long run that like where this all goes is towards like L3s, which is like an app specific chain, which essentially means you move to a chain that's gasless that, you know, is running just your game code. Um, so again, like this idea of split execution is really unique. Um, the idea of like assets versus gameplay execution, you know, having these on different chains, I think is a pretty unique idea. And I think we're probably one of the first companies, uh, studios to do this. Um, and we had to kind of solve it because we were just like bleeding out because of it, because of the gas cost originally. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So if I'm understanding this correctly, I, I'm, I'm not a technologist and I know you are. Um, you would have, uh, so you're the first one I think has also brought up the notion of L3. So you'd have a game-specific L3, which is essentially your version of a centralized server where all the game logic happens. It knows the rules of the game. It knows what's a valid move, what's not. But there's no gas, right? Uh, and it's nothing's on chain yet. Then you roll up to the L2, is that right? Um, well, Like once a day of. or once an hour or something like that? Well, so the question is, why do the gas costs go up on Polygon, right? And so, so the reason why is because we were part of a shared blockchain. So we were running our game, and we were just happily, you know, running our stuff. And then another project launch that was like, uh, I, I think, I don't remember the name of it, but it was like a DeFi project. And people were just like churning and burning through transactions, trying to like, you know, get this, you know, just to get their, you know, uh, I think they were trading or something. And as a result, it was causing the gas costs to go up for, for all other projects on Polygon. And so, you know, as a result, you know, our costs went up. So one way to think about it is that if you're on a, if you're on a shared blockchain, you know, you're at the, the whim of everything else that's running on that chain. And so now there's this idea that like a bunch of companies are, are looking at, which is the idea that like, okay, you have application-specific chains. So it's still a blockchain, but there's only one application running on it. And that essentially ensures, uh, you know, like fixed pricing or however you want to figure it out. And then what you can do is you can have, val you can have validators, like uh, nodes that are shared across multiple applications. And so it essentially enables, um, enables a lot more consistency and predictability in terms of pricing. And you're right. Actually, you had something really important, which is this idea that, and this is going back to kind of our original point of like, should everything be on chain or not? Like, should gameplay be on chain? Should this art piece be on chain? You know, like, actually, I think a good way of figuring that out is to put it on L3. And then the things that are worth persisting, someone can pay to have persisted on an L2 or all the way back down to the Ethereum L1. And so it, to me, this is all about like how you create a free market of data. And for gameplay, I think most, you're like, most people don't care. They're just like, let's, let's make sure it's fast, cheap, 
and secure, reliable, and then over time, you know, persistence you can you can pay for. Yeah, my cold sweats are back. Um, <laughs> uh, no, just kidding. Um, so uh, let's shift gears a little bit again because uh, I do want to come back to this extensibility notion, which I know is is really really interesting, and and that's part of the reason why I'm really interested in fully on chain games. Uh, maybe even the main part. Um, and so you're not just building your own game, and over time, of course, games. I'm presuming a portfolio. Uh, that's where you start, of course. You know, proof of concept, dog fooding, all that stuff. Um, but I know that you're also hoping slash encouraging, I guess, other developers to take what you've built um, on chain, take it to the next level, maybe take it in different directions, um, really leaning into the composability aspect that you know blockchain enables. And this is obviously kind of modding on steroids. We've already mentioned, you've mentioned modding. You got your start in modding, uh, Doom and Quake. Um, so how do you see modding working differently in fully on-chain games um, versus how it works now? And how do you see this third-party developer ecosystem evolving over time? Uh, yeah. How different is this from what we've always had in, in the modding community? Yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think there's a few things. Um, one, that, like, I, I think the tools themselves can actually be made a lot easier to use. So, like, we've always had, you know, open source. We've always had code sharing. But when GitHub came around, it kind of rethought and kind of re, you know, it basically rethought what it meant to actually collaborate on software. Right? I, I can go I can go to GitHub today, I can press the fork button and have a complete copy of a repository with all the code and everything ready to go. And I can just like run the install command. I'm, I'm off to the races with my new project. And so I believe that what we can do is actually like, you know, when we think about modding itself, there's like different levels of ease of modding, right? So like at the hardest level is like someone being like, okay, like I put a zip file up with all the Quake source code. You have to go copy it, you figure out how to compile it and, you know, you can start doing stuff there. Then there's like one level easier, which is like what we see on uh, like um, with UEFN and Roblox where it's like, okay, like, you have these games um, and there's some prefabs and other people can sell prefabs to you and you can then put things together and start to, to do things. Um, and then like, I think there's going to be a third version of this, which is like, you know, literally anytime you're playing a game, you're also able to start, uh, start editing. It, right. So we have this idea, like, you know, you know, you, you drew the distinction earlier between developers and players, but I actually think those blinds really start to blur in games like Roblox and Minecraft where like mm. literally every player is a creator, right? And every um and I think that's the that's the direction Epic's going in with the UEFN as well. And from my perspective, like, you know, the rendering side, which is what most of these companies are doing, is interesting, but like where things really start to get a bit crazier when like I can create a new project and I essentially have like a list of ingredients that I can pull from. So in, in you, you built a bunch of games before you know this, like, you know, I don't know how many times I've built a leveling system, like dozens, right? Like how many times I've had to develop like a quest system or achievements or any of these other things. But like, you know, what's really cool is that when you think about network effects here, right? Like what you're doing is you take a modding and you're adding network effects on top of it because everything is open read and open data by default. And, and if it's all built using the same set of primitives, that also means it's all intercompatible. So, um, you know, to draw a non-technical analogy, like if we're creating Iron Man, 
right? What we're doing is we're establishing the Marvel Cinematic User uh, Universe. Some other company or creator can go create the X-Men, Spider-Man, etc. And just because, you know, we're based off the same set of primitives in this case, those characters can all cross universes by default. So one of the really challenging parts when people talk about like the metaverse or any of this like NFT stuff is like, hey, like you can take things from one place to another. But the issue with that is that usually it requires a ton of work in order to actually integrate those things. But by building off a same common building block, interoperability is guaranteed to at least a sub level by default. Now you still have issues with art and so on. We're doing voxel based art for that reason. It creates art compatibility. But, but basically this, this idea that like, you know, I've created a module, like, like it's possible for someone to create the last leveling system ever. It's possible for someone to create the last quest system ever. And then every future game developer that comes on just uses, you know, the, the quest system from 10 years ago and the leveling system from 10 years ago, because there's no reason to build it again. So it's possible for us to start creating software or, or modules for, for software that are considered done. And it's just like really powerful idea because when you don't have to build all this other stuff, it allows you to focus on the things that are new. And so like, this is what's powerful about it is that like when you have really great creator tools that do a lot of the scaffolding for you, you can focus on just your content, the thing that you're bringing that's new to the table. And what's cool is the thing you're bringing new to the table can then be the scaffolding for the next person. And so like, you know, it's way to be, it's way to see, but because of the network effects here, I think it could result in like a, the type of creative output that we've never seen before in the games industry. But uh, the million dollar question is, can you make uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe work with DC Comics? I think that's what our listeners are all curious about. Does that, do you enable that? Because that alone would be... Well, well technically huge. you could, only because <laughs> the, the equivalent analogy here would be that they're both they're both printed on paper, mm-hmm. right? And arguably, you could take the, the, you know, you could take, you know, with paper and ink. You could literally, as long as they're created with paper and ink, they could live next to each other. You could take those pages and splice them into a comic book and actually create a merged copy. Maybe the licenses won't allow that, but it's not stopping anyone from being able to do it. Yeah. But digitally, we can't do that yet because of all this other stuff that you know it's come up in the last ten years of. Of building products. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I, I love the vision here, and I, I do see that this could enable a really kind of, you know, modding on steroids, like I said, of uh, really taking these building blocks and, and, and going big. You you alluded to the fact that you already have some developers taking uh, some of your stuff, and uh, you, you've been in stealth until now. We're recording this, you know, under embargo, so I actually don't have a ton of, uh, you know, information on, on and what's happening in that kind of developer ecosystem. Do you have developers working on your stuff already? Like, what are they doing? Uh, how are they? How is it being received? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to use the word developer really loosely here, but like, um, essentially, it's players, mm. right? So we have a bunch of we, we. The game's been live, so you can go on Discord now um, and and see what folks have been doing because we've we've had live players for the last you know uh, now it's been nine months. We've been doing releases every week to the game and just making it better and better. But we're basically building a public. And, you know, someone in our community, someone literally one of our, our uh, you know, top players shared this with me. And, and they've, they've been building the tools to help them play the game, mm. right? So, like, again, it's blurring that line. It's not like I'm going and, like, contracting with a, a bunch of other game companies to be like, use my engine. In fact, that's, like, 
it's fine. We'll eventually do that. You know, like if, if, um, if folks find it use, useful, but like I, I'm, I'm taking a page out of, you know, Epic and Tim Sweeney's book here, which is just build a great game. And it's probably likely that if you, if you are able to build a great product that you're going to get some technology and a platform out of it, that's going to be useful to other people. And so that's my primary focus. And so the fact that like people are already being like, okay, like, you know, we're taking what already exists and we're trying to make, you know, the like hardcore power user version of it makes a ton of sense to me. In fact, like I was, I was expecting something like this to happen. It's already happening, which is really cool because our user base is not su- super big yet because we just launched free to play. And so, um, yeah, so like it's, it's, it's really coming happening very organically from the community itself. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's always a good sign if you're a developer, if you're trying to build a, uh, something when your community actually starts to uh, do work. On, you know, like, and, and I use do work not uh, in a pejorative way, in a positive way. They're they're doing work. They're building tools. Um, they're making it easier to play the game. They're making things that help others potentially as well. Uh, usually a good sign. Usually you're onto something. Um, so that's awesome. That's great to hear. Um, okay, well, we're coming kind of... Uh, close to the to the end of our, our kind of scheduled uh, episode here but uh, I do have you know one final question here uh, this is obviously a very ambitious project uh, you know building the engine fully on chain all of the things that were making me break into cold sweats and you've obviously raised that seed round um, to match that ambition and so I'm just curious to hear what does your roadmap look like now for the next you know year two and and beyond like what does success look like uh, what would make you happy 12 months out from now 24 months out 36 months out yeah, so uh, I think for us, it's it's solving like a, a lot of the big pillars that go into a game, right? So, uh, you know, we just I think figured out onboarding, like how do you get you know players into the game frictionlessly? Next for us is is going to be okay. How do we get this on other devices? What would a mobile version of the game look like? Um, how do we enable people to take part in the um, in the commerce aspects of blockchain games without having to like learn all this really complicated technology. Can we simplify that down? Right. Monetization, obviously really important for us. Um, so we're still figuring that piece out as well. Uh, right now we've, we've actually never sold anything at this company. Um, you know, we get a free mint, um, players are exchanging and everything else that players have in their inventories is just through gameplay. We've never actually, uh, like had like a premium purchase or anything like that. So uh, we're going to start doing things like that in the future. Um, open sourcing everything. So we're just, for the sake of just moving fast, we've just been like, you know, we haven't really focused on uh, splitting our, like, our common technology out from the rest of our game to, like, uh, to make it easy to open source. We're going to clean that stuff up. We're going to put that out there. Uh, you know, starting to look at game two and three uh, and, and what that what that looks like. Um and then also uh, the, the last one that's, that's really interesting is like more like collaborative and social features. So one way to think about Web three games, but especially on chain games, is that they're hyper, they're like basically like super social games, right? I, the gameplay doesn't just happen in the game itself; it also happens on Discord, it also happens on Twitter, it happens on OpenSea. Like there's all these other places that players are playing and competing and collaborating with each other, right? And so um, us putting more of those features into the game to help juice that is really, really important. So uh, PvP is an obvious one. Um, then guilds, um, allowing people to collaborate with each other to create communities, 
um, and actually have these communities live on chain versus just kind of in some centralized fashion. Um, lots of really hard problems to solve there. But again, all of this stuff, you know, one way to think about it is like, you know, as we build these things, we're not just building them for Pirate Nation. We're building these things for ourselves too, because, you know, we are also standing on our own shoulders. And so, so you, you know, it's, it's ambitious, but you know, that's, that's the journey, right? What's cool is that we're actually just building foundational layers every time we launch something. So it doesn't really feel that ambitious to me. It feels like a, you know, just a, like a, like a long trek, um, but not really exhausting in any way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, that's actually an interesting follow-up I have on that. So, you, you know, you're dog fooding your own platform, if you will, or your own tools, your own assets. Um, how extensible is that two games, two and three that you're going to build yourself. I mean, I think that's really the, the big test, right? I would, I would have thought internally is how much of what we have already built for Pirate Nation and all the tooling around that and all the features and the social and the PvP, yeah. like all that stuff, how much of that can you realistically use in game two without it feeling like it's almost the same as game one, right? Is that a fair question? Yeah, that's a fair question. Actually, I've been lying to you uh, <laughs> a little bit here. Um, so uh, when I first pitch the company to people, I would say we're not a games company, we're a game company. And and what that meant was that like there's never a game two or three, right? It's all actually just one code base. And um the again, it's all on chain. It's all open source. It's all open data, which essentially means everything we've built for Pirate Nation is available to game two and to game three. But like you know, if you think about you go back to the Marvel Cinematic Universe concept, Pirate Nation is just one entry path. It, you know, Game Two Ninja Nation could just or whatever I'm not announcing Ninja Nation, but like if <laughs> Game Two is Ninja Nation, Ninja Nation is just it's it's just another entry path, right? But it's the same universe. And so, you know, my view is that everything we build is usable in the next in the next game. So even our avatar systems and a lot, a lot, of, a lot of decisions we made around art, like I, I, I'm like really, you know, I'm, I'm, I haven't like emphasized the art stuff that we've been doing, but like from my, we like standardize on a voxel format for art. And the reason why is that voxels are essentially the lingua franca of art, right? 2D art and hyper-realistic 3D art doesn't merge across universes. But like Legos, you can have the Harry Potter Lego collection, you can have the, you know, the Star Wars Lego collection, you're smashing together IP, but ultimately the pieces still fit together, right? So we're not just doing this at the code level, we're also doing this at the art level. And, um, you know, everything that I do at the company is just focused on reducing our, reducing our dev cycle speed, our, our dev, you know, the time between releases, and just getting better and faster at, you know, shipping. So I just tell folks all the time, just ship, 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 ship. That's all we care about. And my job as a CEO is to keep just amping the the urgency and the ex, and, and accelerating us, helping us build tools that take away the time between shipping releases so we can put things out faster. And, um, and yeah, so I'm hoping that we can keep reusing the things that we're building. Long, yeah, that's a short answer. Yeah, yeah. no, no, that's, that's great. Uh, very final question here. Um, what is the thing that you're most excited by kind of on the horizon, either in, internally or something that's, you know, on the horizon that's going to happen externally that is just going to make, you know, things easier, better, faster, blow up, you know, w- whatever that might be. So what are you most excited by in the, in the near-term horizon? Um, so we've been building our tooling internally 
And I, I've been a tools developer my entire life. Like when I was at Epic, I was working in the real engine, uh, the, the real editor, rather. So it was the thing that enables creative people to be more creative more effectively, right? So I, I, I constantly ask myself, what is that for on-chain games? And we're like working on that internally and we're like starting to actually use this stuff internally. We haven't like 100% cut over to it yet, but it's like... Like I basically want to make it so that anyone can create, you know, create this con- create confidence without having to write code or without having to, you know, be technically proficient at all. In fact, you know, if you think about what WordPress did for internet publishing, like what would the equivalent be for for this space? And um, I'm excited to talk more about that in the future once we've really once we know we have the right answer for it. Well, I mean, you're welcome back on the pod anytime to uh, to to come and talk about that stuff. So, um, awesome. Well, that's the end of our our episode. Uh, it wraps it up nicely. Uh, I mean, thank you so much for coming on the pod. I just really excited uh, for the vision. Um, obviously, a lot of technical challenges. My cold sweats won't go away. Um, I'll probably get flashbacks later on uh, and into the future. But uh, just a huge thank you for coming on, and obviously, big congratulations on that uh, that seed round, and obviously, all the progress that you guys have been making. Thank you so much for having me. It was was a really great discussion. Great. And a big thank you, of course, as always, to all of our listeners. Uh, We'll be back next week with more interviews, more insights, and more analysis from the weird and wonderful world of Web3. So until next time, friends, stay crypto curious and feel free to send questions, guest recommendations, and comments to me. My email is nico at novic.co. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.